you want to take out your sermon outline that says God's reign on it. We are in our hiatus from Genesis and looking at several verses. Um, teach us about Christmas and about Christ uh, from the prophet Isaiah. Today we are in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. So let me read this for you, and, and then we'll get started. Isaiah 9, verse 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you as always, for making us your people. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for how it points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray today that you would open our eyes to behold the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Focus us on your word and on your son. We need him this morning desperately. Help us to see Jesus today. In his holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Not long ago, a Sunday school teacher asked her class, what is Christmas a time for? And she got the usual answers. It's a time for Jesus' birthday. It's a time for joy. It's a time to worship God. And then one child raised his hand and answered, it's a time for good sportsmanship. And she said, okay, why is it a time for good sportsmanship? And he said, because you don't always get everything you want. So what do you want for Christmas? It's a question a lot of people get asked this time of year. And some people are easier to buy for than others. An old issue of Biography Magazine, several uh, famous people were asked just that question. What do you want for Christmas? And one uh, famous actress said she wanted to learn to play the guitar, so she'd like a guitar for Christmas. That wouldn't be so hard a gift to get. Another actress said she wanted diamonds. What else? Even that wouldn't be a difficult gift to purchase, depending on how big the diamond was. One famous actor wasn't asking for much, just a big, luxurious private jet. So some people still are easier to buy for than others. And when we buy gifts for uh, our loved ones, we try very hard to get presents that they either want or need. And the problem, of course, with many of the presents people get for each other is these gifts often end up in closets or toy boxes and eventually get sold in garage sales or down at the thrift store. And the ultimate gift, sort of the holy grail of Christmas giving, is to give a gift that will last. A gift that will meet such a deep felt need that it's not boxed up or put aside. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet uh, Isaiah, we read that God says, I'm going to give you a gift like that. I'm going to give you a gift that will last for a long, long time. So let's look at this passage again. I'll be reading verses 6 and 7 because they sort of go together. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The central figure throughout scriptures is Christ the conquering king. In the book of Isaiah, the centrality of the conquering Christ is vividly seen for us. And a couple of interesting uh, sort of trivia questions about the book of Isaiah. There are as many chapters in Isaiah as there are in the book of the Bible, uh, the whole Bible. And Isaiah divides in, uh, essentially into 39 chapters and then 27 chapters, as do the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the tone of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah sort of has an Old Testament ring to it. There's uh, much in terms of call for repentance or face judgment. But the remaining 27 chapters sing the gospel of the New Testament. So there's still much of a call for repentance. Those last 27 chapters actually divide into three chapters of nine chapters each. And in the center section is called the Messiah section, the center nine chapters from Isaiah 49 through 57. And the center chapter of the Messiah section is Isaiah 53. And it gives us the clearest view of Calvary to be found in Scripture. It seems appropriate that Isaiah's name means the salvation of Yahweh. So one moment, the book of Isaiah is very dark and black with thunder and the darkness of the storm. And then the rainbow shines through and Isaiah sweeps his readers onto the golden age that's still ahead. And he writes about the Messiah as savior and as sovereign to illustrate both the cross and the crown. To Isaiah, Christ is just as much the Lamb of God as he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So in this Advent season, this is my uh, third sermon on the incarnation of God the Son from Isaiah chapter 9. And the prophet Isaiah has told us about the coming of the light and the coming of the sun, and now he's telling us about the coming of the king. Isaiah is a prophet more than any other who foretold the coming of a Messiah who would be both God and man. It's for good reason the great church father, St. Jerome, referred to him as Isaiah the Evangelist. We think of the Evangelist, we think of the four Gospels. Perhaps we should think of five. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. Because it's in Isaiah we learn six or 700 years before his coming that Christ would be born to a virgin, that he would be called Emmanuel, God with us, that he would suffer and die for our sins, and that his kingdom would extend over the entire earth, bringing peace, justice, righteousness, and salvation to all mankind. And so we're looking at one piece of that. Right now, we're looking at the increase of his rule. The increase of his rule, that should be the first blank there uh, in your outline. It's a little warm in here today. So I had to choose it to wear extra layers. We read, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, that fan is about to collapse on me, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness this time forth and forevermore. The promises of the coming king, the son of David, the hope 
of the Messiah. That's what's in this passage before us this morning. And in verse 6, Isaiah uh, drew attention especially to his name. That is, it's name as an expression of your character, reputation, personal attributes, specifically the character of the king. And then, of course, when we go ahead to the Christmas story in Luke, in Luke 2, we read that uh, the birth of this child is described this way. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So right out of the blocks, Isaiah is reminding us that we need this child. This child is here to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. And furthermore, he's given. He's not just born. He's given of God Almighty. God the Father gives this child into the world. He's a child and a son. Language clearly indicating his rule and his reign for Israel. He is what is needed for the succession of David's line to fulfill the stipulations of the promise of 2 Samuel uh, 7 that in David's line there would be a king to reign forever. So uh, a male child in the line of David is needed and this is that child. And the second thing that we see is his work is kingly. The kingly work of this child is described in that beautiful phrase in verse 6. We love to hear it sung in Handel's Messiah and the government shall be upon his shoulder. A number of you are specifically looking forward to that part of his reign. He will bear the weight of the world for his people. The government, the rule, the reign will be on his shoulder. The government of the kingdom of God will rest on his shoulder. So his kingly work is indicated in this passage. Now think about that day. Think about Jesus' day and how tired Israel would have been waiting for the fulfillment of this promise by the time that Jesus came. They've spent most of their history from the time of Isaiah to the time of Jesus under oppression, conquered by whatever is the latest world empire. They've suffered through the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now they're suffering under the Romans. They're waiting for this promise to come true. And how tired they would have already been by the time that Isaiah announced it. The northern kingdom had gone through how many dynasties, how many capitals, and even after King Ahaz, the southern kingdom is never again going to be ruled by an independent Davidic monarch. And so for the next 500 years, the people of God would be waiting for a ruler. And God says when he comes, his rule is never going to end. It's going to be stable. It's going to be forever. It's going to be the eternal king, the endless monarch of his people. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And Isaiah now almost loses himself as he's looking forward down the corridors of time. He sees the coming of Jesus, the growth of the kingdom of Jesus, and King Jesus ruling and reigning in all of his glory, with all of his children that God has given to him and that he has purchased at a great price with his own blood. So not only is there going to be an increase of his rule, but there's going to be an increase of his peace. An increase of his peace. The prophet declares that peace and justice and righteousness are going to characterize the reign of the Messiah. 
That's not the case now, but it's to come. It's one reason why uh, Christians pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want this kingdom to come. And that reign is then going to issue into an eternal state. So we have Isaiah looking forward. We have the time of Jesus where many of the prophecies are fulfilled. But we're also looking forward to his coming again. And the final establishment of his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15 says, But each in his own order, Christ is talking about the resurrection on the last day. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So the central idea of Isaiah's oracle is complete and lasting peace comes with the righteous reign of the divine Messiah. And the prophet is anticipating that this present gloom at the prospect of war, he's writing in Assyria, uh, this evil empire from the north is on their doorstep. This prospect of war is going to be replaced by the joy of peace. And that peace can only be accomplished through a king who's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Righteousness and peace is impossible without him. Nothing is impossible for him. And the words of the prophet hold out great hope for his generation. God is not abandoning his people to invasion and disaster, but is promising that in spite of the prospect of the coming war, there is a glorious future ahead. And on the eve of the birth of Jesus, the nation of Israel also felt the oppression of world conflict and the despair that it brought to him. And into that world, Jesus came clearly claiming to be this king, this king of wonder, the Messiah of Israel. But his first coming is to lay the foundation for the glory that would follow. That is, his death on the cross would reconcile people to God, bringing them into eternal peace through the forgiveness of sins. And so now as we look forward to his coming again, the words of Isaiah still hold out hope for us too. Wars and conflicts still abound. Despair and depression accompany the fear of danger and aggression. But the word of God is clear. There's coming a time of complete and lasting peace with the coming of the Messiah. There is hope. And we who know the Lord by faith need not despair as those without hope. So what then are we to do while we wait for the king? Well, first, it's our task to carry on the ministry that Isaiah had to announce to the world who that hope is. It's Jesus the Messiah, and our primary concern is that people find that eternal peace with God. The Bible says we're the ambassadors of this king, calling others to be reconciled with God. Our efforts have to declare to the world that the hope of peace rests with Jesus Christ and none other. But secondly, this passage also instructs us about the resources available to us even now from our king. We know Jesus is the wonderful counselor so that we can obtain instruction and guidance uh, for our lives from him and in his word. He's the mighty God for whom all power is given to him 
so that we can trust him to accomplish great things in us and through us. He's the everlasting father. We can take comfort in the stability that knowing our sovereign God's reign will bring. And he's the prince of peace, that we can rest in him, knowing that because of Jesus, all is well between us and God. These descriptions of our Lord Jesus are calls to greater prayer, greater confidence, greater faith, greater service. But why would God do this? Why would God announce this 700 years before Jesus came? Why does God promise this righteous reign and peaceful rule? Simply put, because he keeps his word. He keeps his word. This is the fulfillment of a promise. A fulfillment of a promise. Now, why would God give us this gift in the form of a child? As an infant. It's kind of an unusual kind of gift. If you read the promise, you're thinking, you know, wonderful counselor. It's not a, not a child. Mighty God. Not a child. Everlasting Father. Not a child. Prince of Peace. And yet all those things come to us as a child. So as I was thinking about that sort of why question, I thought of several answers. Perhaps God gave Jesus to us as a child so we would understand you know, some of the principal teachings of the church that we're called to be humble, to humble as a child in our walk as Christians. Perhaps um, Jesus came to us as a child so we would understand through Jesus, that God is now accessible to us. And coming as a child, Jesus gives the image of being approachable and loving. And I, I think there's some truth to those answers. They're both good answers. But I think there's a much deeper reason why God sent us a child. And simply put, because that's the present that he promised. That's the present that he promised. If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had sinned by taking of the forbidden fruit, they lost their closeness with God and all the blessings that God had given them. And as a result of their sin, from that day until this day, mankind has lived in a constant fear of death, has struggled with all the hardships of life. But God promised Adam and Eve this curse wouldn't last forever. In addressing the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God promised that one day Satan would be crushed, and he would be crushed by the offspring of the woman, a child, a son, for to us a child is born, to us the son is given. And when Jesus died on the cross, Satan believed he'd struck Jesus down with a mortal blow. He had struck at Jesus' heel, and he believed the so-called Messiah was destroyed. But instead, it was through that death on the cross and his ultimate resurrection, Jesus crushed Satan's head and defeated him for all time. And when the angel had appeared to Mary, if you go back to Luke chapter 1, he told her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Does that terminology sound familiar? Throne of David, kingdom never ending. Where did the angel, where would he have seen those words before? Of course, these are the same terms that God uses in this prophecy here in Isaiah 9. And it's the gift of this child, the gift of his son, that would bring us our salvation and our hope for eternity. In other words, the purpose for this child being born, the son being given, was to establish a kingdom, a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. And this kingdom won't last a mere 40 or 50 years. It's not even a kingdom of 1,000 or 2,000 years. This kingdom would last forever. And what kind of kingdom would this be? Jesus was asked about that. He was asked about his kingdom in the Gospel of John near the end of his life when he was in uh, the courtroom of Pontius Pilate and the Roman governor was questioning him. And it says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So here it is again, that Jesus, the, the reason that Jesus was born was to become a king. But his kingdom is not of this world. And the Apostle Paul wrote that you and I are part of the kingdom. And the book of Colossians chapter 1 says, The Father has qualified you, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You're in the kingdom. God has transferred you, delivered you from darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son. But notice who does the work here. The Father does. The Father is the one who delivers us. The Father is the one who transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It is all the accomplishment of the Lord. The accomplishment of the Lord. And of course, in our passage in Isaiah 9, verse 7, at the very end of that verse, Isaiah stresses one more thing. He says, it is the zeal of the Lord that will accomplish this. God is the sovereign personal cause behind this hope and joy. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Psalm 124, uh, 8 says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying to the people of Israel. The hope that they have is sure not because of anything that they're going to do, but because of who is behind that hope. And who's behind the hope? The Lord is. Psalm 124 talks about all these 
hardships that people are facing. Basically, it says if that weren't for the Lord, the anger of our enemies would have undone us. And here's Isaiah saying, the anger of your enemies is no match for the zeal, the fire, the fervency, the fervor, the ardor of your sovereign God who says, I will do this. And there's something interesting about this passage. Before verse 7, all of Isaiah 9 up to verse 7, it's all in the past tense. And now we read, the zeal of the Lord will do this. I think that ought to be helpful and encouraging to us. Because some of us are here today, and we haven't finished our walk in the darkness yet. The light of Christ has dawned in our hearts. We've stood up and said uh, we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel, as you just heard. At least we profess that we do that. But we find ourselves in a fallen world still facing the miseries of sin and all of its effects. And then here's a word for you. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Reminds me of another verse of the Apostle Paul. The first verse I ever learned in the Bible. A long, long time ago. Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you. Will bring it to completion. At the day of Jesus Christ. And as we're later admonished in Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Without wavering. For he who promised. Is faithful. God's the one who's going to do the work. It's good news when the Assyrians are camped at the door. It's good news when you live under Roman oppression. I think it's good news when you live under the false gods of secularism and materialism. You know, at the beginning of the sermon, I said, the ultimate gift is to give a gift that will last. A gift that will meet such a deep felt need that it's not going to be boxed up and put aside. And in Isaiah, God says, that's the kind of gift I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a gift that will last. And if you're like me, you notice there are some things just don't seem to last very long in our world anymore. Lots of things today in our society don't seem to last. Like If you're like me, you've been doing some Christmas shopping this month, and uh, I bought some clothes for family members. Knowing when I bought them, that clothes wear out pretty quickly. Lots of things don't last very long. You know how long the pain on the highway lasts? You know those dotted lines on the road? Four months. That's it. Every four months, I have to go back and pay them again. How about this one? I thought this was funny. A pro basketball player's sneakers. How long do the shoes last for a pro basketball player? Two weeks. Two weeks, that's it. Pro basketball player's shoes, they're worn out, throw them away. Of course, they probably get them for free. If your name's Michael Jordan, you got a new pair for every game. There's 80 games a year, not counting the playoffs. He's getting 100 pairs of sneakers a year, or used to. Wonder what do you do with them? 
you know, and play a long time. That's a lot of sneakers. So for him, they lasted a game. That was it. Time for a new pair. I got sneakers that are older than some people in here. But then I didn't play pro basketball. I don't know why not. I should have. So how about a dollar bill? About 18 months. Now, yours lasts a lot longer because it's under the mattress. But for most people, once it's in circulation, it only lasts about 18 months. You know, you think about things that you, you hope are going to last, things that are going to last. You know, one of the kings of England last century, very short reign because he decided to abdicate, give up the throne. You look through the history of the kings of Israel. There's one year, they had four kings in one year. Same thing with the Roman Empire. One year, there were four different emperors. Talk about turbulence. You know, since the end of World War II, Italy has had several hundred presidents. It hasn't been that long. And while we have turnover in the offices here in the United States, it's not at all like it is in most places in the world today. But we still have turnover fairly quickly. You know, four years, maybe eight years, maybe less than that. And today we're thinking about Jesus as king, superior to any other king, because of the bloodlines take him all the way to heaven. But notice that Jesus is not only superior as a king because of his bloodlines, he's superior because of how long his reign will last, how long his throne will last. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, we elect politicians. We elect a governor. We elect a president. Four years later in the presidency, we elect another one or the same one for another four-year period. And then we elect another one. We elect senators every uh, few years. And we elect representatives every two years. And... We elect mayors every now and then, sometimes more than now and less than then. Things just don't seem to last. But then we read, he will be great. and He will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. We're coming close to Christmas. It's all about the tinsel and the cards and the food and the presents and the tree and all the rest. But friends, make sure this year that it's about Jesus. The king who was born in Bethlehem, who died at Calvary, who rose from the dead, who's sitting at the right hand of God the Father in glory. Jesus, the first and the last, the middle and the end. Revelation 1 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I pray that God would just hide this treasure of this king in our heart. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May God hide this treasure in our hearts so that the light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ might shine forth from our hearts as we prepare for this Christmas season. This day, think about him because he's the king and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Oh Lord, our Lord, thank you that you are the great king. The one to whom all knees must bow and all tongues confess. Thank you that you're the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Thank you that you are the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Thank you that you love us and have freed us from our sins by your blood. Thank you that of the increase of your government and of peace there will be no end. Thank you that your kingdom will be one of justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Thank you that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Lord, here there is so much grace, always grace given to us in the person and work of your son, Jesus. So this morning we pray in the name of the one who lives and reigns 